Well, this morning we're going to continue on and uh, in our series on belonging. Uh, two Sundays ago, April Yamasaki kicked off the series for us in talking about this uh, really practical aspects of belonging and being neighbors and engaging. Uh, last Sunday, we continued on with this series by introducing sort of three big concepts of belonging in the scriptures, that of covenant, that of kingdom, and that of the local church. And uh, so these covenant kingdom and church, we are continuing to unpack this Sunday and next Sunday. And then uh, as usual, we have a guest the, the end of this month, one of our Sundays in each month. And so this morning, we're going to dig into this idea of covenant a little more and then move into kingdom. What is this kingdom concept that we see in scripture, the basilia, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or the kingdoms of darkness? Uh, so we want to unpack that today. Uh, in their book, Next Door As It Is In Heaven, Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe discussed this loneliness, profound loneliness that people are experiencing in our world. And this subsequent and sobering sense that many of us have this sense or many people have a sense that they don't have any value at all. And many of us often contribute to this sense of loneliness and self-worth as we move throughout our day. We rarely even lift our heads uh, to offer simple greetings to people. Ford and Briscoe contrast this aloofness with the daily practice that Peter Singe noticed when he was among some of the tribes in northern Natal, South Africa. And he said this, the most common greeting among some of these tribes is the, the equivalent greeting to hello in English is the expression saubona, and it literally means, I see you, I see you. If you're a member of the tribe, he goes on, he says, you might reply by saying sikhona, or meaning I am here, I am here, I see you, I am here. And the order of the exchange is important. Until you see me, I do not exist. It's as if when you see me, you bring me into existence. I see you, I am here. Let's practice that this morning. This site says, I see you, and this site says, I am here. Let's go, one, two, three. Now look at each other this time. <laughs> look across the aisle. One, two, three. I see you. I'm here. Okay, let's reverse it. Can we handle that? I know it's a lot to ask on a summer Sunday morning, but let's reverse it. Ready? So other way, but look at each other. Well, one more time just for good measure. Whew, we made it through. Okay. <laughs> Stand up and give the benediction. It's time to go. <laughs> the church is a place of belonging, we talked about last Sunday and the Sunday before. We're a new community created by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's tricky because of our divisions, whether it's our cultural divisions. Uh, and I'm from the States, and we talk a lot about racism and privilege and all of this. Whether it's social economic divisions, which in some ways are even harder than ethnic and cultural or racial divisions, uh, social economic class difference divisions, uh, with education differences, and all of these things play in. And our world wants to tribalize us. Our countries of origin want to tribalize us. Uh, and I was sharing some about some of the stuff that's being cranked out of different countries last week. Uh, they want to make us think that our in-group of uh, these various political things are more important. And the church has always said, no, there's a greater thing afoot. There's a commonality through Jesus that all humanity has. And the church exists as this power under alternative 
within the kingdoms of the world to be a blessing, but also to be a prophetic voice when those kingdoms are dehumanizing and degrading and pushing others away for consolidating power and control, and usually ending in dehumanizing violent things for others. Ford and Brusco go on and say in this passage or in talking about the door next door as it is in heaven in the book, they said, a deep truth resides in this cultural practice of I see you, I am here. We often move throughout our days without seeing people as people versus, well, they're part of this political party or they're part of this culture or they're part of this economic group. And then as far as it matters to us in that moment, they don't really exist when we other As is often said, we other other people. They are the other, whatever the other is. Being conscious of how we approach people throughout our normal routines each day is a step of encountering this belonging. In our church, when we have debates and disagreements, ultimately we have to remember, this is my brother, this is my sister in Christ. And we may have disagreements, but I will not other them, I will not dehumanize them, I will not devalue them, for Jesus died for them as he died for me. Jesus declared that they are of inestimable, uh, 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 beyond estimation, inestimable worth that he died for them. And this changes how we relate as humans. And so the message of the gospel of the kingdom, belonging is central to what it is. Oftentimes the church, especially those of us in the moderate to conservative end of the church, think that, well, they need to get cleaned up. They need to become like I am. They need to to get their issues in line. Their sin list needs to be all before I can engage with them. But in fact, more people will come to know Jesus as we expand the circle, let people belong, and as they encounter the Holy Spirit in each other in the community of the church, some of them will become followers of Jesus as they get tired of their lives being defined by the rat race and the consumption and all the various things that our cultures around us tell us are our core identity, that as we learn that that burden is too heavy and they begin to see the church as operating in a different way within the world but yet of another kingdom, uh, that they hear the music, as C.S. Lewis would say, uh, the, God creates uh, out of singing or, or the deeper, older magic. They encounter that and they're like, I need that at my core. And we name that as Jesus and his very spirit. So this morning we continue to unpack this, this month. What is belonging? I want to read to you from a verse in scripture First uh, Peter, are you with me this morning? I mean, I'm preaching to myself. I love what I'm going to say, so I'm happy. I can sit down and shout a minute myself, but are you, are you tracking with me this morning? All right. <laughs> I am here. <laughs> First Peter, chapter 2, says this, and he's been going through talking about how God has created this new Israel, that Israel was the vehicle of salvation And that in Christ, the mission of Israel is complete and fulfilled. And now Israel and all the rest of us are grafted in and we continue onward in this new humanity started in Israel and now expanded to all the new Israel or the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians. But 1 Peter chapter 2, if you're going to follow along, I'm just going to read a few verses. And this language, if you've been a Christian, you've been numbed to it. You're dulled to it. You need to hear it as if you were hearing it with fresh ears. He says this, to the church gathered, but you are a chosen race. Mean that in Christ, brothers and sisters are no longer divided by our ethnos, our nations, but we are now becoming this new thing that God always intended. But you now, all of you are a chosen race. 
You are a royal priesthood, the church, all of you. You are a holy nation, a people set apart for God's possession, his people, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness, the broken ways of relating in the world, the conflict-driven, the ideologies that feed antagonism, that way of being human, which is so destructive but so prevalent everywhere. He said, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 10, to all of us, he said, once you were not a people. Well, wait a second. I was a person. I was this, this, and this. I was of this country. I was of this social economic group. I was of this education. I was of whatever. He said, once you were not a people, God counts that. It's important, but it's not nearly as powerful as what he wants to do in Jesus in us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were driven by judgment and competition and idolatry And so there was no mercy, there was just judgment. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy because of what Jesus has done. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that in Christ, there is an identity that's being formed. There's a people that's being formed. And now, of course, we hear stories when the church doesn't live up to this beautiful expectation. Of course, And we must be quick to repent when the church has fallen. And often when the church fails is when it starts operating like the kingdom of the world in how we relate to each other. And we don't see each other as people on a journey with Christ as brothers and sisters in him. But this picture is the goal. And the messy as we live it, we live into this. Last Sunday we talked about this difference between covenant thinking and contract thinking and how we relate. Not to review the whole thing, but covenant is where we, we, in light of what God has done, and God being the ultimate covenant maker, enters into relationship to sustain and to build and to bless the other. Covenant is other-focused. Contract is me-focused. Contract is like buying a car. Covenant is what a good marriage is. Contract versus covenant. And, And our thinking in the church has been influenced by this a lot. In fact, we talk about church restructuring. Sometimes when we talk about the difference between pastor, talking about my own role, pastor as a hireling versus pastor as sort of this spiritual uh, equipper, Ephesians 4. The hireling doesn't care. The shepherd, the pastor will go after. And, you know, shepherds sometimes even had to be a little rough with the sheep to help get them back with the rest of the fold. You know, I've got that one down. I'm working on the gentleness side. Uh, (laughs) But this idea of covenant versus contract. And from this, I've been borrowing liberally from Greg Boyd, Scott McKnight, um, Matthew Bates, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And we'll unpack a little bit more of that today to talk about this. But like so many things in scriptures, faith is not just about some intellectual consent. And sometimes people think in the Western church that it's about, well, I said the right thing. Uh, I I said, Jesus, come into my life. Uh, I gave mental assent to belief and we leave it there. When in fact, it's much more than that. It's a following. There's an ethics. There is a continuing journey with Jesus in community that makes one a continued Christian. And so sometimes in overreaction to what happened in the abuses of the medieval church, the pendulum swung too far the other way saying, well, all it is is this ascent. I'm saved by faith and grace alone and and forgetting what all of those things unpacked in the New Testament meant versus what it meant in reaction to the abuses of the medieval church. And so we have to bring it back and say, no, there's a following. There's a community. There is a covenantal relationship of saying, 
When I receive Jesus, Jesus has done both the human and the God side, but now my responsibility of faith is to continue on in relationship. And in that, I am changed. I am transformed. We want to individualize it in Western culture. I just want to control my Christianity and pick and choose versus submitting ourselves as a family, brothers and sisters, with Christ as the head and his teachings uh, as that which guides us. Oh, I want to say more. Matthew Bates says this. That maybe we should speak about salvation, being saved in the church, how you become a Christian and remain a Christian in terms of allegiance. I like that word. Would you say it with me? Allegiance. If you're aware, there's an airline in the States called Allegiant, a dangerous airline. I've had friends travel on it. They've made it safely, but it's, you know, one of these budget carriers. But anyway, allegiance. Allegiance. Don't confuse the two. Allegiance. And he says this about allegiance. Allegiance is a better overarching English language term for what Paul intends by the use of pistis, which we often more customarily translate as faith, belief, and trust. Getting away from belief, trust, faith, allegiance gives more of the the grittiness, has more teeth to it in terms of what are we saying when we follow Jesus? There's a conversion prayer that we use here sometimes, and part of it says that I give my allegiance to Jesus above all other powers and authorities and rulers. Following Jesus is not simply a, okay, I'm freed from my sins, Jesus paid it all, the bill has been paid, all the legal sort of uh, transactional views of salvation. Allegiance tells us we're also committing to Jesus as a king of a kingdom and a different way of being human. And again, the kingdoms of the world have nothing to fear. The church is not known, but it's not to be defended by swords or violence. The church is known by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. But that can be very unsettling to those that are used to only power under ways of doing things. So let's go a little farther. Let's talk a little about covenant this morning and sex and kingdom. These all tie together, believe it or not. (laughs) I better take a drink of coffee. I'm getting worked up and I'm, yeah, I see you. (laughs) You failed the test. I see you. Okay. Maybe that should be our greeting in the lobby going on, or the foyer. Uh, So let's talk about one aspect of covenant, and then we'll get into kingdom, and then church will be next week. Um, And I usually just go with my notes in a series, and then I stop where I need to stop, and then we pick it up, because we are in a conversation. And then when home church starts up, you go deeper with the conversation, uh, and you can correct my bad theology during home church, too. If it's really bad, let me know, then we'll we'll work on it together. Um, But... This was a summary of something that uh, uh, Dr. Boyd shared about this idea. What about sex? When we think about covenant relationships in the Bible, there are various covenants. Covenant that God made with ancient Israel. Covenant that God makes with, through the church. There's covenants that we make when we are members of the local church. Membership in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere is a covenanting process of how we will sustain relationship for the blessing and flourishing of the other. And as we do that together, the body is built up. But one of the most foundational covenants in Bible is marriage. And I've had people leave a church over me teaching on this and some of the hot issues of the day. Uh, In fact, even in this church, I've had other people join a church because of talking about this. Uh, This is a hot topic, but we don't think about our bodies and sex covenantally in our culture much anymore. There's some residual pieces in some of our cultures. But there are four main ideas about this idea of this most basic covenant that we have with our body towards another it also is fresh in my mind, too, because we recently had a sort of a sort of the hyper-Calvinist neo-reform guy that moved to Vancouver, 
and said his wife and him are splitting up on Instagram and he's going through a deconversion process, I'm going to talk more about what do you do when you're in that place in terms of your faith, sense of faith loss, uh, probably into the fall. But uh, just sort of Instagram, okay, my covenant's over with my wife, my relationship's over. Also think of this huge scandal in the States of Epstein and uh, sort of what's been going on there with powerful men and women abusing others' bodies, reducing people to products for their consumption. Covenantal view of the body and sex does not reduce someone else to consumption. Pornography for Christianity is something you need to fight if you're battling with and you need to find ways to change habits to move away from. But one reason why Christians are so much against this is because it reduces someone else made in the image and likeness of God to be a product to be consumed. The ultimate othering of someone, it's, it's a type of enslavement and we stand against that. That's a whole other sermon, not for today. I haven't been at Pilgrim long enough to preach that one. That's probably next year. But first and foremost, Jesus and the rest of the Bible teach that when two people engage in sex, sexual intercourse, they become one flesh. Say it with me, one flesh. In Matthew 19, verses 5 through 6, Jesus said this, And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus says this, There are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The most intimate covenant you can have besides your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ is to be in a one flesh arrangement with one other person. And he says this idea that there's something spiritual that happens. In fact, now we would even say biologically there's different, I think it's oxy, not oxycontin, that's a narcotic, but oxytocin, I think is the, there's actually a bonding chemical in sexual activity. And as you increase your sexual activity with multiple partners, that bonding mechanism, there's a, it, it gets a little messed up. And there are things that, of course, can change over time as well. And there's grace and all of that in the church. But, but what Jesus said was this idea that we become one. And so intercourse involves much more than two people getting physically intimate with each other. It's more than that, according to Christianity. God himself is involved in creating some new oneness out of the two. This oneness reflects love, and the ecstasy of the Trinity and its foundational covenant between humans in the Bible. Interesting. It's about way more than my pleasure or recreational activity. There's more going on. There's a covenant that happens, and sex is part of that covenant-making process, a one-flesh reality. Does that just blow your mind a little bit today? Maybe you all knew that. Maybe you were like, oh, okay. But this is why Christians... In fact, in the ancient world, when Christianity came in, the sexual practices of the Greco-Roman Empire and the different cults and all of that were just as wild and messed up as they are today from a Christian perspective. In fact, probably even more so because we look down on some things even in our most permissive culture that back in the ancient world they didn't look down on. I'm not going to go into an R-rated sermon, but yeah, just, yeah. Yes. Okay, moving on. So Jesus says, one flesh. The second aspect of this particular covenant in Scripture, this most intimate, I think, other than our relationship with God, Paul indicates that one flesh is created whenever two people have sex together. First <laughs> Corinthians, well, this will blow our modern minds. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says this, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. So this one flesh thing comes up again. Thank God there's grace. There was grace for the, uh, the relationships that were all messed up sexually in the Bible. There's grace for us today. But whenever this happens, this idea is that even when partners intend sex to be purely recreational, 
as having sex with a prostitute, I think it doesn't get any more, it still creates this one flesh reality, Paul says. Something profoundly spiritual and metaphysical and foundational goes on even when parties are, quote unquote, just having fun. There's something that God designed for our bodies in that deepest covenant that also mirrors our relationship with Jesus and the church, Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, that is meant to teach us, that is meant to challenge us, and meant to also indicate that there is something greater in God and in the kingdom to come, but in sex, this covenanting, there's power in it. You guys are really quiet today. I know, I don't know, is this, is this a hot topic? I, okay, all right. I'm going to take a little more coffee. I see you. (laughs) I'm here. Here we go. I hear you. The third example uh, is sex and intercourse is a sign and seal of the marriage covenant. It symbolizes the one flesh reality that God creates between two covenant partners when two people come together. And this is why in the scripture and in the Jewish tradition, a couple wasn't considered married until they had sex. Think about that. In traditional Jewish weddings, the couple would go off, have sex after exchanging vows, and the post-wedding celebration wouldn't begin until they returned. Think about, let's implement that at Pilgrim Baptist Church. (laughs) Okay, I I better keep moving. Keep moving, buddy. Keep moving. We'll never get to kingdom if I rabbit trail on this. Not today. And so they would have that party. If a man had sex with a virgin outside of wedlock in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, he was commanded to marry her in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 through 29. Think about that today. If we, if, if we never want a theocracy because that's power over, not kingdom of God ways of being, but think about that. You have sex with a person, boom, for life, you're with them. But that was the, what was going on here. He said, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married... And in this case, there's a power dynamic, so hear this, do not be triggered, but hear this. And if he forcibly has sex with her, and they are discovered, he will pay her family money, and he must marry the woman. Now, of course, in our modern days, we would throw the guy in jail and prosecute him. But I don't want you to miss what's going on here. He's saying, since he'd already sealed the marriage covenant, it is believed he had an obligation then to live up to that covenant. Now, we would, our values, we would see it differently But the picture about sex is that there's something bonding and binding. And while that's an extreme violation, there's something that we need to see in terms of the bigger picture of what happens in sex and why it is such, uh, how we read it through Jesus, is such a brokenness in our culture. So this means, here the bigger picture, that sex is anything but recreational. There is no such thing as casual sex from God's perspective. Sex is never just about you. It is covenant creating. It is covenant. It can be used to break covenant uh, as well. So whenever two people engage in sexual intercourse, they are in effect sealing a sacred covenant that was never meant to be broken. Even with the sex with a prostitute, Paul says, and this principle that we see in Genesis. Again, what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me read it again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. But clearly there was a problem with people going to prostitutes and there was all kinds of sexual craziness going on in this church because they, in the ancient world, were reaching people for Jesus. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's timing with everybody is a little different. And so this challenge did, how are you going to channel your sexuality? How are you going to submit it to Christ is one of the discipleship challenges we have 
in the ancient world and certainly today. Verse 16, do you not know that if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one with her? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus says this as well about divorce. In Matthew 19, verse 6, he's teaching, but he says about this about marriage. He said, they are no longer two, but become one flesh. And we say this in wedding ceremonies often. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Finally, last thing I want to say about this foundational human covenant. Are you still awake? I see you. Okay, all right. Half of you didn't respond. I see you. I'm here. <laughs> okay. Oh, honey, pack my bags. Uh, finally, we need to know throughout the Bible that the sign of a covenant was considered part of the covenant itself. So the action of sex itself was also part of the covenant. It's not just a separate action. There is actual part of the covenant being enacted. And so when you violate or desecrate the sign of a covenant, it's breaking the covenant itself and God took those violations very seriously in the Old Testament, this sense of when you break a covenant, it is a serious violation against God and against other people's humanity. Anyone who violated the Abrahamic covenant sign for males in the Old Testament, it was circumcision. Uh, and if they violated that, they were banned from the community. Anybody who didn't keep the sign in Old Testament of Sabbath keeping, and it's not how we read it now, we read it through Jesus, but if you violated Sabbath, there were strong Uh, prohibitions and strong uh, disciplinary actions against the person. So when we violate the sacred sign of the marriage covenant, we invite pain and misery on ourselves. And not only ourselves, but those we have sex with and on society as a whole. And perhaps this is why Paul treats sexual sin in some ways more severely in in his sort of teaching He says this, again, earlier in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. He will also raise us too. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And he goes on in verse 17, we read the other two already, but he said, verse 17, for whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know, and this verse applies to a lot of things, but certainly to sexuality, he says, do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The deepest covenant we can make with another person is that covenantal bond with our sexuality, our sex life. Unlike other sorts of sin, sex sin involves violating the most sacred and foundational covenant God made and gave humans to enter into. When we casually tear apart what God has joined together, it negatively affects us and others. And we could talk about all the negative effects, and I'm a bit on a rabbit trail this morning, but how do I sneak in a message on this without warning? It's like whenever I teach on tithing and giving, it's going to have another title, and then it's going to be snuck in. So I've been a pastor long enough to know how to do this. Boyd gives some statistics from the United States. He says that one in five Americans has an STD, and in fact, in Canada, there's an increase in STDs. One of the consequences. In the U.S., almost 40% of kids are born outside of marriage. 
40%. I don't think it's that high in Canada at this point, hopefully never. But that's a reality in doing church and ministry. Over 40% of all marriages and in divorce, that's actually decreasing, but not necessarily for a good reason because people aren't seeing sex as tied to marriage. And so they're doing whatever with whoever from a biblical stance. They've been married multiple times, uh, but they don't have their legal marriage until I've got the right one. And so marriage rates, divorce rates are actually decreasing, but it's still pretty high, but they're decreasing and it's not necessarily for good reasons, if you hear what I'm saying. The number of abortions we could talk about. We could talk about the rise of sexual dysfunction tied in part and a lot to the use of pornography and the othering of others because you no longer see another male or female in their proper uh, humanness versus the airbrushed, polished, sanitized, photoshopped version of people. Again, that sermon I'm not ready to preach until next year. I haven't been here long enough, but I could talk about that. There's a reason why you need to do battle against that if that's a controlling issue of pornographies in your life because it actually will affect your real sexuality and real sex life. Millions have emotional and psychological scars from bonding one flesh with people way before they ever should have, and according to Scripture, should have only been with one person ideally for their life. They deal with all of that, the therapists, all of the stuff that we go through because of this idea of we bring these relationships together and we bring them apart. Now, there's a false purity culture, I, I can preach against that too, that sort of idealizes, and, there's a, and, and Josh Harris was part of that, uh, and now he's completely gone the other direction. Uh, but there's actually something that I think is a third way between sort of the false purity culture that sort of condemns and binds people and makes them feel forever guilty versus the freedom of Christ. He said to the woman, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. Uh, We need to understand there's a false thing here that can be idolatrous in the conservative church, for sure. But going the other direction and saying it doesn't matter, it's just about me and my recreation, and nothing else is happening in sex is also a big lie and destructive as well. You're covenanting with someone literally in your body. I would say too, and I said this during some of the years after 9-11 in the States, whenever this issue talked about sexuality came up in Scripture, and I would say, in some ways, I agree with my conservative Muslim brothers. Uh, I don't agree with how they're, where they're going with it, uh, but in some ways, I agree with them in terms of the, the decadence of the West. In some ways, our cultures uh, sort of foment this. We don't want democracy and freedom. If that means uh, people are devaluing each other and treating each other like products uh, and, and, and women in some ways have more freedom, but in other ways are actually more devalued, like there's a lot of things in there. And there's a third way I think the church should be exploring versus simply buying the language of the far left in our politics or defaulting to a false conservatism on the right. Uh, so yeah, covenant. Oh wow, I went longer on that than I thought. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Are you hearing that we need to wrestle with this concept of covenant at every level, the foundational level of male-female and our sexuality? We need to wrestle. We need to find a third way forward by being informed by Scripture and the tradition of the church that there is wisdom here that is deep and ancient. And if we believe that this word is inspired at all, there's more going on physically, psychologically, and emotionally in sex than our culture, at least in many Western nations and and many other cultures as well, uh, is, is telling us. We're being fed a lie. But the false purity culture has beat so many people up no grace, no forgiveness, second-class citizens, whatever, 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 that, that we, we tend to overreact to this, so we fly to the other side. It's, it's basically the same coin, different sides. 
But moving forward, maybe in another direction, what is the scripture teaching about the nature of being in the body and how we actually covenant with others? There's something powerful going on there. We need to explore that more and have more open conversations about that in church without being called bigoted, crazy people about, uh, because we're talking about, well, maybe not all expressions of sexuality are all the same, and maybe there is some uh, pieces of brokenness, nor going to this other side that says, hey, uh, only th- there's this pure, holy, heterosexual uh, expression that, that is, in fact, all of our sexuality in our body is broken and tainted by sin, so we live into that tension, and then we still hold the teachings of Scripture and Jesus up on this. So we'll talk more about that in the future in year three. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I got to land the plane. Uh, Kingdom. Can I give you five more minutes before I let you go? Because I know I'll get complaints if I don't finish at least some of the kingdom part of the outline. Five more minutes? No? Oh, man. Uh, I'm not... Well, we're not a democracy. Well, we are a congregational church, but we vest our authority in leaders, and then you can vote them out if they misuse it. So I'm going to misuse my... No, I'm not misusing. I'm going to give you five more minutes here. Look at your neighbor and say, I see you. Oh, look at your neighbor and say, I see you. Ah, okay. Some of you got that. So to introduce kingdom and church, and then we'll wrap this part up next Sunday, I just want to introduce it. So hang on, you'll be fine. Most basically, when we talk about this other sense of belonging, covenants, covenants, whether it's marriage, sexuality, marriage, uh, the local church, how we relate to other humans, covenant with God through salvation, allegiance. The next layer or the bigger overarching layer for all of these is the kingdom of God. And most basically, the kingdom of God is people governed by Jesus, people governed by Jesus. The kingdom of God is not fully here. It is inaugurated in Jesus' first coming uh, and Israel's mission as an example of that, uh, Jesus' first coming, but we live in between the times until his second coming when he brings the kingdom fully. So the kingdom has come, is coming, and will come fully is sort of the scripture, this tension of in-between times. There's differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And this is important to get if you're going to understand our faith. Kingdom of the world... It's a contrast of what do we trust in. Kingdom of the world trusts in the power of the sword, while the kingdom of God trusts in the power of the cross. I'm going to go through these quickly. The kingdom of the world advances by exercising power over versus power under. Uh, Yoderian theology talks about this idea of power under. There's different aims. Kingdom of the world, kingdom of God. Kingdom of the world seeks to control behavior. And the kingdom of God seeks to transform lives from the inside out. Huge difference. And when the church forgets this, it gets into this false conservatism or just totally gives up and pendulum swings to the liberal progressive side. But in fact, we believe in something that's neither one of those. It's about a power of God working within us to bring about change that brings about our ultimate good and flourishing. Better than either one of those ditches can supply. The kingdom of God is centered on carrying out God's will even when it requires sacrificing self-interest. Contrast of scopes. The kingdom of the world is a tribal in its nature. It's heavenly invested in defending. It's not advancing. It wants to advance its own people group, its own nation, its own ethnicity, its own state, its own religion, its own ideologies, its own political agendas, kingdom of the world thinking. This division based on othering others and false judgment That's why the kingdom of the world is characterized by perpetual conflict. 
but the kingdom of God is supposed to be intrinsically universal for all people, and it's centered on simply loving as God has loved. It's centered on people living out the purpose of replicating Jesus' love to all people in all times and all places without any conditions, because the love within transforms us. Oh, there's good stuff. We'll revisit some of this next Sunday. The last two, and then we'll say amen. It's a contrast of responses. Kingdom of the world is a tit-for-tat kingdom. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. We believe in enemy love and blessing those who persecute it, the kingdom people. We carry the cross, not the sword. The kingdom of God carries the cross. We are not ever to return evil with evil, violence for violence. But we return evil with good. We break cycles of violence. We look for the well-being of our enemy in the hopes that the enemy will be experience the love of God and be changed. And even if they don't, this side of eternity, we still work for their good. Kingdom of God versus kingdom of the world. We respond differently. And discipleship is learning to respond differently. Finally, contrast of battles. The kingdom of the world has earthly enemies. What enemies does Canada have? Does Canada close to the kingdom of God? Some Canadians think that, and then the smuggery level goes off the charts, and now we're full on the sin of pride. But anyway, okay, that's another sermon. All right. The kingdom of the world has earthly enemies, fights earthly battles. The kingdom of God has no earthly enemies. Its disciples are committed to loving their enemies, treating them as friends, their neighbors, There is a warfare in the kingdom of God, but it's not against enemies of blood and flesh. But as Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Stand with me this morning as we prepare to leave. You are meant to be in covenant relationship. There's layers of covenants and different kinds of relationships, but you are meant to be in relationship with others. You are also meant to understand that there are two kingdoms and you are choosing to participate in the kingdom of God when you swear allegiance to Jesus by saying, I want to follow him. I want to be free from the wages and the brokenness of sin and relating in that way. And you enter into that and there's power in that. The power is there and it continues across generations and cultures and time. There's another way of engaging beyond religiosity that Jesus shows us or beyond what the secular powers of the world say. And so this morning, as we continue in this series, will you make an awareness in your heart and mind that you are covenant-making people, that you are called to be in covenant relationship with others, rooted in God's kingdom by the rule and reign of Jesus, Will you also, as you prepare to leave this place, be challenged that your politics are first and foremost Jesus? In fact, when we get in more into this next Sunday, church, the church, the the language that Paul used goes straight out of the political discourse, the ecclesia, the, the gathering of the polis of the city. We are to be an alternative city within the city for its good. Our first politics are Jesus. And third and finally, as we prepare to leave this day, how are our responses? 
Are they Jesus-centered and Jesus-shaped? In the fall, as we get there, we're going to do a short series on being triggered. How are we dealing with our responses? As followers of Jesus, those are shaped differently. And so this morning, let me pray as we prepare to leave. Lord, thank you for your presence here. There have been many moments of divine interruption here today and of the Holy Spirit moving. And God, we have felt your presence in this house. We pray that we would understand that you've called us as a local church, as part of your kingdom, an outpost of your kingdom, of an expression of the kingdom. That there is power in this house to change lives, including our own. That there is power by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate a different way of being human, and even in our most intimate of relationships to the largest of circles of relationships. And that you are calling us to be a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a a chosen race set apart to declare the glory of him who called us out of broken ways of relating, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. So Lord, may we be a place of calling people out by your spirit, your spirit working out of that darkness into your light. Set us free, move us into kingdom business, we pray in Jesus' name.